0: This is your brain, and this
1: is heroin. This is what happens to your brain after
2: starting heroin.
1: If you grew up during the 80s and the 90s, you probably remember these commercials. They were short, simple, and to the point. At the height of the crack and the AIDS epidemics, they wanted to warn kids about the consequences of drug use. After all, the clock was against you. On one hand, they're a little dated, but they work for some kids. This may not be what you want to hear, but something that people have always been asked
3: is, you know, what's it like? The only thing I can say is, when you do heroin, you can sit there and watch TV for eight hours straight and be completely content. And the TV doesn't even have to be on.
1: On the other hand, that's my cousin Greg. His family ran a small dairy farm and spent a lot of time at their church, a local Jehovah's Witness Hall. He was older than me and busy with his family, so we didn't have a lot of time to hang out. His parents embody the Midwest, blue-collar farmers who work hard to support their children and aging family members. To be frank, they are painfully good people, always polite, always fair, always there to help you. To this day, his parents are the nicest people I've ever met. His mom even gave me her record collection just because she thought I may like it. To Greg, they are what they appear. No, my parents are amazing. Um, they really are. Yeah, my
3: dad is, he is what he appears. That's, that is the, what you see on the outside is what you get. That is him all the way through. My mom is, you know, as she's gotten older, she's gotten. Not that she was ever a bad mother, because she was she was a fabulous mother. But she's actually gotten better with age, believe it or not. She's, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, told me he just told me last like a week week ago that uh, she's happier now than she's ever been in her life, and and that has made her a better mother.
1: Greg's parents declined to be interviewed. As we will see, addiction is complex and painful. Pieces like this or reality programs like intervention only scratch the surface of addiction and recovery. In all honesty, it's a long process, and, as we'll see, it's not always going to end well. When my family heard about Greg's heroin addiction, it was difficult for some of us to comprehend. This is central Wisconsin, where heroin addiction isn't supposed to happen, especially to people like Greg. Even today, when I sit down with him, he tells me that others find it odd how he, of all people, is a recovering addict transitioning into that like situation for someone who had like peripherally just been kind of an outsider. Cause you weren't, you weren't like a bad kid for the sake of being a bad kid. You were Greg. I mean, you got along with everybody. You were nice to everybody. Was it kind of odd or was it such a gradual transition that it just became part of everyday life? No, it was
3: odd. You know, and what you just said was something I heard almost every day. Like y- what? Are you a cop? And even to this day, like when I tell people this, like, they're like, I will tell people I'm a Joe's witness. And I'm a recovering heroin addict. And people are like, well, I can see the Jehovah's Witness. Even when I was an active addiction, it was something that I heard constantly.
1: While at the same time, this wasn't the first we had seen opioid addiction, several people we knew struggled with it, like my childhood friend Chris Wessenberg. As his mom, Becky Short, explains, heroin addiction isn't supposed to happen here.
2: I think a lot of people, when they think of, like, a heroin addict, they think of someone on the streets of New York, you know, homeless and destitute and a junkie. Um, and that's just not it anymore. It's the average Susie Homemaker down the road or, you know, a, it could be anybody. You just don't know.
1: Addiction is treated like a cultural commodity. From reality programs to award-winning dramas, there's a lot of attention on addiction. Addiction allowing the general public to see how it starts, how it operates, and how it maintains itself. While at the same time, addiction is always an arm's distance away to be experienced by other people in other places.
3: DARE's hey, puppy? With
1: yeah, the War on Drugs done? and its Just Say No Everybody, campaign, we were immersed baby, with education. Our elementary school did the DARE program with cartoons and lessons about peer pressure, oh, no, self-esteem, and drug use. These initiatives were simple, Real friends don't do drugs, because drugs are bad, and bad people do drugs. Addiction isn't a catchphrase. It goes beyond a story of bad people doing bad things. It's complex. There's a network of people and choices that often conflict with one another. And sometimes, bad things happen to good people. It's important to consider this. What happens when your friends didn't say no? As we talk about Chris and Greg today, it's not as simple as resetting a clock and starting over. It's seeing people who went too far before they couldn't get back to where they started. Greg and Chris didn't know each other for the most part. In all reality, they are two very different people. Their only real connection was me and their parents' hometown, Granton, Wisconsin, a small village outside of Nielsville. And life in Granton is just that small. As my mom, Dixie Langrick, who grew up with Becky and Greg's aunt, explains, it's always been a tight knit community.
0: You know, you know everybody. You know everybody. If you walk into the grocery store and you didn't know someone, you're like, who's that? You know, when I tend to bar there, um, I would know pretty much everyone who walked through that door. I would know who their family was, I would know who their children were you know, who their parents were, who their grandparents were. If a stranger came in, it was really noticeable. My grandparents would come over for dinner on occasion, and we would sit there after dinner, and I don't know if this was just my family, and you would you would go over the local gossip because you felt like not only was, you know, did you need to know, but it was your right to know what was going on <laughs> with everybody. <laughs> so, you know, I, I think, you know, when it comes down to it, I think a, a pretty just because it is so small it was a pretty tight knit community
1: Chris and Becky lived in the same apartment complex as my mom from the start I liked Chris and a lot of kids did too my first memories as a child were playing with him my sisters and her friend Alicia at the local park he was a blonde blue-eyed handsome kid who liked the ninja turtles and the San Francisco 49ers and that's how most kids remember the past just the good parts but there was a lot about Chris that we didn't know, especially about his dad. Before Becky and I spoke, he was just an absent character, a person that came and went from Chris's life periodically. As she explains their relationship was complicated.
2: Chris had very little interaction with his dad. What happened was when I was pregnant with Chris, um, his dad went to jail. He was in a co- he was in the county jail for some pretty minor charges like forgery and worthless checks. And then because I was pregnant, he made a really bad decision and decided he wanted to escape from the county jail, Um, which brings you to a whole different level of felony because he did escape for like a month and from the sheriff, no less, which didn't really make anybody happy. So he then went to prison. Um, So he was in prison when Chris was born um, I did take him to see him periodically when he was a baby, but he really didn't have anything to do with him until he was, like, three and he got out of prison.
1: When Chris's dad got out of jail, he did get visitation rights. It turned out to be a nightmare. Chris really didn't know him, and getting dropped off at his house was like spending time with a complete stranger. This went on for a while, but he went back to jail and left Becky and Chris with pretty much nothing. They did have some support. Becky's parents took to Chris, almost like their own child. It was a strange power that he had. They showered him with many things that Becky just couldn't afford. Being a single mother at 17, she didn't have many options. In retrospect, Becky said she may have moved too quickly or let her parents' influence linger just a little too long. But she wanted a better life for Chris, and she wanted to be able to support him on her own. So she enrolled at a local college and moved to Eau Claire, Wisconsin. Yet, it wasn't as simple as she thought.
2: I think the biggest problem was, when I lived in Eau Claire, was I had, like, no family here. So the support system was really lacking. Plus, I was going to college, but yet... I wasn't really like a typical college kid, so I didn't really have any friends. So I was really kind of alone, and that made it very, very hard. But, you know, the constant struggle of, of money was always something for years and years, just being a single mom. not I didn't really get child support, and so trying to buy the things you need without relying on other people is very difficult And then just being so young, I did not know what the hell I was doing, Um, you know, and I can look back now and go like, oh, my God, that was just so stupid to do. But I had no, you know, you have no idea how many things you're doing wrong as a parent. And I think that happens at any age.
1: Although Becky and Chris didn't have much, they had each other. College was difficult and being a single mother didn't make it any easier for them. Still, this is one of the happiest moments she has.
2: Um, I think some of the best times that I had with him um, when was when we did live in Eau Claire by ourselves. Um, and he was little, like from the age of three to six. You know, we did a lot of things together, and it was just kind of the two of us, and we were very poverty-stricken, but, you know, found things to do, um, got excited when my mother would send me money for toilet paper. That was like a good day.
1: During this time, Chris really started to become his own person.
2: You know, he always had a really good sense of humor, and and I think that's one thing I really miss was his sarcasm and his his sense of humor. Um, so he, he could be a lot of fun.
1: Becky and Chris moved back to the area after three years in Eau Claire. Becky was in a serious relationship with her future husband, Bill Short, and he had a good job near Nielsville. Things were looking better for a while. Then Chris's father came back into his life.
2: When he was 10, his dad was um, out of jail Um, got in a car wreck, broke probation, and was going to have to go back to jail, but he was so seriously hurt from having a car chase with the police that they let him recuperate at his mom's house with an ankle bracelet. When he knew he was going to have to go back to prison, he took off with one of his two girlfriends at the time and her kids to Texas. I believe they were going to go to Mexico just a lot of bad luck but anyways he ended up, somebody called the cops to check on them because of a storm and whatever he got in a standoff with the police in Texas and then they said that he committed suicide but anyways Chris was 10 when his dad died that way so I took him to a counselor oh lord probably around then or maybe even a little bit before to try to help him deal with like not having a dad and And um, all of that stuff.
1: Chris continued with counseling throughout school. And it wasn't something that he talked about, at least not to me or some of his other friends. He was 10, he was confident, and kids at our school liked him. As Becky points out, it wasn't that simple.
2: I don't think he was as confident as maybe he was perceived to be. Um, He did kind of excel at sports, although I I think he was kind of pushed into that a bit, and I don't really know that he loved it as much as we all thought he did. Um, I think he wanted to make a lot of people happy, do what they wanted him to do, and and I think that's kind of where that came in.
1: Greg had a different family dynamic than Chris. Being the oldest child, he had several responsibilities, like being a good role model or showing his siblings around the farm. Although his family was close, Greg felt like the odd one out at times. It's something that him and his parents talk about to this day. As he explains,
3: Me personally, I have always been, black sheep isn't quite the right term, but, you know, like, I know my brothers and my dad are very much into motorcycles and four-wheeling, and for me, that's great, and it's fine, and it's something to do, but it's never been my passion. I've always been much more of a, I want to go and play softball, or I want to go and play football, or I'm a much more, I guess, active, more involved in athletes, athletic sports type stuff, and that's never been my parents or any of my siblings. So it was a little, and again, this is something that, in hindsight, I've talked to my parents about, it was hard for me to find something because
1: nobody else wanted to do it. For all intensive purposes, Greg had a great childhood. Even he admits he couldn't have asked for a better one. Honestly, our conversation didn't focus too much on his life before addiction, because there really wasn't much to talk about. He was a straight-laced kid who didn't cut class, stayed out of trouble, and even excelled in high school ceramics. As Dixie comments, a lot of this comes down to his parents.
0: There, it, it's it's hard to even describe them. There, probably there are two sets of couples in all my life that I would that come to mind when I think of people who describe themselves as as Christian you know even if they don't describe themselves that way but in my mind it's people who are just good people who treat others well who you know are are kind to others who are helpful and Vince and Joy are one of those couples they're just nice um you know but just just really nice hardworking, genuine people
1: If you only looked at Greg and Chris on paper, they are not too dissimilar. They belonged to the same peer group, lived within miles of each other, belonged to the same socioeconomic class, attended some of the same schools, and knew some of the same people. Although they share certain commonalities, they led two very different lives. And as we look at this further, you need to remember this, addiction doesn't discriminate. There isn't a perfect timeline for addiction. There are many factors at play. As the National Institutes of Health suggests, addiction is complex, compounded by biological, developmental, and social factors. In simple terms, the biggest influence in one person cannot be applied to everyone else. Each person's experience is different. After graduating high school in 1999, Greg didn't go to college or take over the family farm what could have felt like the very first time he was able to do what he wanted. Uh, that, that's kind of when I got into my, well, my wild
3: stage. I went to a lot of concerts. I um, hung out in Madison a lot. I, um,
1: that's when I met my first wife. In terms of wild phases, it was pretty relaxed. Greg wasn't breaking any laws or committing any crimes. He was traveling outside his hometown and visiting different cities like Minneapolis or Madison. He even came back with things, like souvenirs. In fact, he gave me a free ticket to the Misfits on their famous Monsters tour. How has life changed? It started with an accident. What happened was I, uh, I broke my wrist,
3: and I had, to have, I had to have surgery on it. And they prescribed Tylenol me 3.
1: Tylenol-3. Tylenol-3 3 isn't the over-the-counter variety. It's mixed with codeine, an opiate, for moderate to severe pain relief, similar to Vicodin. It's a controlled substance that's only available through prescription. Many of our friends or family members worked manual labor, so it was getting prescribed a lot. And naturally, it traveled outside of the home. For some people, codeine was a recreational thing, a means to relax. But for Greg, it was something else. It made him more comfortable with himself. It allowed him to be the kind of person he thought he could be. At this time, he had started a long-distance relationship with Rochelle, his future wife. And things were looking good. So I'd take the Tylenol 3s and I would
3: call my, who was now my ex-wife, and I would talk to her. And I felt, you know, growing up in high school, I was very much an average person. I wasn't exceptional in any way. Um, I never did anything. But I was always kind of uncomfortable. You know, and I think that, you know, especially as an older person— you realize that now I think most people are kind of uncomfortable with themselves. You know, at that time in my life, I was about 19 years old and I, I was very much uncomfortable. And you're also at that time looking for people to date. So when I started taking the Tylenol threes, they made me relax. They made me calm. They made me feel more in control. They made me feel comfortable. So I felt like I could go out and talk to people. And that's when I started dating my first wife.
1: Greg packed up his things and moved to Michigan to be with Rochelle. And for a while, things were good. He was with his future wife, his family was well, and there wasn't much else a person could ask for. Still, Cody left an impression. The, the feeling that I had when I was on it never went, like, I
3: always remembered that. It was something that my brain never forgot. It was always like, if somebody would say, hey, I had my tooth pulled, they gave me some Viking and they're great. Oh, can
1: I have one? It was always there, and that stuff was around a lot at that time. Even if Greg couldn't forget about how Tylenol 3 made him feel, he wasn't actively seeking it. If someone had some extras and didn't need them, he thought, why not buy them? Greg and his wife came back to Wisconsin periodically. It was a chance to touch base with his family. Also, they could visit his friends, drive around the back roads, while listening to music and talking about the future. Um, So when we came back to visit
3: my friends, we uh, went out, you know, we're hanging out, and we just kind of went for a cruise and uh, we're driving around. We got in an accident,
1: almost killed killed ourselves. We uh, airlifted to the hospital in Marshfield. As Greg speaks about the accident today, it's more of a matter of fact than anything else. They were lucky to be alive. Between a lengthy hospital stay and longer outpatient therapy... They didn't go back to Michigan, so after getting out of the hospital, Greg took a job as a server at a restaurant in Marshfield. The accident may have closed one door for them, but it opened another. There was a massive insurance settlement in their favor. So large, in fact, it covered their medical bills and a down payment on a house. Also, Greg had a steady cash flow from his job. After a near-death experience, it was a good start for them. For Greg his addiction happened over time. So this wasn't like you all of a sudden you just got like pushed into it and it was just Not like the next day. This was like, this was a slow process. Well, there was a big turning point. What um, was, what was the turning point?
3: Well, as you had mentioned, we had, we had bought a house and like, basically everything I made, everything I made at work was profit. Like everything I made was profits. So we had, we had money. And you know, it was like one of those situations where like somebody was like, yeah, I got to get a root canal and I, or whatever it was. And I got these Vicodin and I was like, Hey, you want to sell them? And then somebody else overheard it. And they're like, Oh, if you like Vicodin, my boyfriend is going down to Milwaukee. He can get you some and they'll probably be way cheaper than whatever this is. And I'm like, okay, that sounds great. I've got like $10,000.
1: Were you, like, getting it in, like, mass
3: quantities then? And that was the first time, yes. Okay. Yes, that was the first time, yeah. And that wasn't
1: $10,000. I think it gave her, like, $5,000. Okay. And that, and that was it. Greg's dealer was well-connected, and when Greg wanted another big scorer, something new was brought to the table. Um, He'd gotten oxys, and, like, I was, like,
3: I didn't know what they, I'd never heard of them. i had never heard of anything like that. I didn't know what they were, so I was, like, I don't want this crap, it's probably just garbage. I remember the first time I took it, I had, there were 15 milligram pills, and
1: I think I took two of them. I slept for like three days. During the mid-2000s, $5,000 wasn't a handful of pills. It was a box full. And Greg didn't have to parse them out over weeks and months. He could take them daily. And He did. With this amount and picking up pills on the side, his supply was steady, if not seemingly endless. And for a time, he kept on going to work and keeping up appearances. Life was manageable.
0: She was a good mom.
1: You know, he certainly
0: wasn't neglected. Um, Becky loved him very much and took good care of him. I can't speak for Becky, but from what I could see, I think that... Chris, because his father wasn't involved, um, you know, Becky felt, I think, probably, I don't know if more responsible than for her other children, probably isn't the way to say it. But I think that, you know, that made her feel maybe more protective, that, that Chris, you know, had, didn't really have a whole lot of other people in his
1: corner. Becky is a good mom. Even as a child, it was easy for me and others to see. But Chris, he didn't act well to opposition especially at school. And Becky knew this and tried to give Chris opportunities to succeed. Counseling, parent-teacher conferences, team sports, personal time, or trips with his grandparents. This type of super-parenting, well, it's costly. And that took a toll on Becky. So, as Chris was entering middle school, she decided a change was needed.
2: We switched Chris. We did school choice and switched him to Granton. Which I think was a mistake, but we did it because he was getting into a lot of trouble in middle school, like with the teachers and stuff. And instead of now as a teacher, I can see this. But as a parent at the time, instead of blaming the students, a.k.a. Chris, um, for bad behavior and not being very studious, we were quick to to judge and blame like the teachers and the school and the system. So. We thought all our problems would be solved if we put him in a different school.
1: And Chris's problems didn't go away. They continued into high school. During this time, Chris stopped playing team sports and started skateboarding with me and other friends from surrounding towns. And, from what we could see, he was getting into drugs, mainly pot or whatever alcohol could be taken from the house. To some of us... It was typical. That's what some 16-year-olds did when there was nothing else to do in small-town Wisconsin. To Becky, it was something else.
2: Uh, You know, I think he just quit caring about everything. Like, he quit doing the sports, and he um, was constantly in trouble in high school. And then I think what happened was I found in his room marijuana. Um, And so then question about it. Well, then you're suspicious. So you're constantly looking for these things because he did a very good job of hiding most of it. I think I was pretty oblivious to to a lot of stuff that was probably going on. But then it started being the constant um, phone calls like weekly, almost daily from like the school, from the principal, like he's doing this and he can't be doing that. And he's disrespectful and blah, blah, blah. So that was just like an extreme amount of stress.
1: Tension between Becky and Chris grew from there. As Becky remembers, it was difficult for her and him to find a safe space, even at home.
2: Day to day, it was so unpredictable. And that was very hard because you never knew what mood was going to strike him. And ultimately, I think it was like depression that he was trying to self-treat that I think was the crux of his problem. But he could get very volatile, very angry, and sometimes I would be uh, scared of him. And I had, you know, two little kids, two of his younger brothers, and so I worried about them a lot. So a lot of times when things would boil to a certain point, then I would say, you have to go to your grandparents because I just, you can't be here. Which now I look back and I think that was really the wrong thing to do because he went there and he got to do whatever he wanted. So it was more of a reward than a punishment for him. But um, the hardest part, yeah, is half the time I didn't know where he was or what he was doing. Um, I had friends of his that would tell me he's not at our house, yet he was there. So to find you know, who he's with and what he's doing is was kind of an impossible task in some days.
1: Becky tried to monitor Chris the best she could. Teenagers can be elusive when forced into a corner, and Chris, he was good at getting away. As he was about to finish high school, Becky knew Chris needed more help than she could offer. So she sent him to drug abuse counseling around 2002.
2: He was 17, and I did send him up to rehab in Chippewa. Unfortunately, because he was 17, he could pretty much sign himself out. Like, he didn't, he didn't want to be there, so they said there's really no point of him being here if he doesn't want help and he doesn't want to get better. So, um, and he had a girlfriend at the time, and she really, you know, was, really wanted him to get out. And I'm like, he needs to be there, but he didn't stay there through the program at all.
1: Becky felt defeated. For all the obstacles her and Chris faced, they at least had each other. Now, in a few months, Chris would realize he could leave Granton. And there wasn't much Becky could do about it. For the first time in her life, Becky would have to come to terms with not being able to help him.
2: When your kid has problems, it is heart wrenching and it is always hard because you just don't know what to do anymore. And you get to that point where you feel like you've screwed up and you don't know how to make things better there's really no answer. I mean, I wish I could say, do X, Y, and Z, and this will happen. But, you know, a lot of times people think kids turn out to be addicts or have drinking problems or this or that because their parents were so screwed up. And I'm not a real firm believer in that. I think sometimes parents can screw up. I think all parents screw up to some point. But sometimes it's not the environment kids are in. You know, Bill and I were never big drinkers or partiers, I mean, maybe when we were younger. But, you know, Chris was never abused or neglected in any way, shape or form. And yet he had these problems and I don't know why.
1: Hitting rock bottom is an idiom. You may have heard it among cliche self-help gurus. It's the lowest point in existence, when depravity meets reality. A lot of people use it to clarify a point, like, I didn't know what loneliness was until I hit rock bottom, or, when I was looking for food in a dumpster, I realized I'd hit rock bottom. Take, for example, depictions of drug addiction and recovery in the media. Friends and family surround an addict in a controlled environment. Minor shouting happens, maybe some tears, then everyone hugs. The person is off to a drug treatment program, and then some subscript appears at the bottom of the screen that says, Gene is now starting over. With addiction, hitting rock bottom isn't an instance. It's comprised of many instances, many different rock bottoms. This is something that some people don't realize. As Greg and I speak today, he remembers when his life started to spiral downward. It was a Sunday night.
3: And I just, I didn't, like I wasn't sick, but I didn't feel right. Like I was just anxiety and I was emotional and I was, you know, I don't know, like the worst day of depression that you could ever imagine. You just wanted to sit in a corner and cry. And that's how I felt like I wasn't physically sick at that point, but I think I realized that was, I don't think I realized at that point that this was probably getting to be a problem. And I had a decision to make at that point. I could either stop or I could get more.
1: Did you feel, like, guilty because you were getting more? I did. At, the, at that
3: point, I did, yes.
1: Because, I, yeah,
3: I didn't realize the depth of the sickness. I didn't realize how, how sick I was going to
1: get. Did, like, did your parents or, like, any, anybody from... The kingdom well, Yeah, did, they, did yes. anybody know what you were going through at this time? or No. Okay. Not even my ex-wife. Once you found the right doctor... During this and time, things in America were changing as well. Since large companies promoted the use and distribution of opioids to doctors during the late 90s, more people had access to them, and Greg could find them. In fact, he stumbled across $5,000 worth by chance. But as time passed through the decade, there were more people like Greg who found themselves fighting over the same supply. And, to make matters worse, he began to have withdrawals. Less than
3: 1% of patients taking opioids, actually become addicted. Unless you've gone through withdrawals, you have no idea what it's like. It is, I, I, I can't even, it is the most awful thing that you can ever imagine. I still have nightmares about going through withdrawals. I, I like, it. And I've always been, you know, like I go to the methadone clinic now and I've always told them, like, if something were to happen, where this place were to close and I had to go through withdrawals, I would kill myself before I went through a month of withdrawals.
1: It's the preferable ending, and I think most addicts feel that way. It's awful. So Greg made some phone calls and met up with some friends. As he explains, something new came into the situation. So we
3: went over to her house, and she's like, oh, I can't get them. She's like, I don't want whatever the case may be, but she, she didn't have them. And my buddy was like, hey, if we can't get these, I got another guy who's got some black tar." that's what we're going to do. And she's like, well, I can't help you.
1: So that's what we did. We went and got some black tar. Black tar is heroin. Unlike Oxycontin or Vicodin, it's not a pharmaceutical made in a medical facility under FDA regulation. It's a dark, tarry substance that's often cooked down in makeshift labs with base acetones like vinegar or gasoline. And it's not a designer drug. It's cheap. Greg soon realized... Being an addict was a full-time job, and it wasn't easy. Among work, marriage, bills, and family, there wasn't much room for a full-blown heroin addiction. Over the years, from Tylenol-3 to heroin, Craig's parents began to notice. They were nice people, but that doesn't mean they were oblivious. And they tried to help. You know, my dad, I think,
3: kind of took it in stride. I know the way my mom dealt with it was pouring herself into research. That's how she dealt with it was research, research. Well, how can I do? What did I do wrong? How can I fix this? What do I need to do? What, that's how she coped with it.
1: Greg can't recall the exact details of this time. Almost like the years from 2007 to 2012 were diluted from his memory. His family intervened and sent him to rehab. But, as he points out, rehabilitation doesn't erase an addiction. Many people relapse after rehab. It's a hard truth that most people don't realize.
3: I've been through re- rehab twice. The first, time, the first time I didn't realize like what exactly I was dealing with. So it was just like I went in and I got detoxed and they put me on suboxone and then I left against doctor's orders after six days because I felt fine because I was on suboxone. Well, then I, just, within a couple days you're sicker than a dog again. I don't know why people think this but not only my parents but my ex-wife thought because I was super sick again I must be doing drugs which was just the opposite of the situation and they all got upset with me and like which I tried explaining no <laughs> if I was doing drugs I wouldn't be sick which I don't I still don't understand why people think that way I had actually gotten clean and but I was still super sick because you know, you're still going through withdrawals months and months and months later.
1: As the months went by, Greg's life wasn't getting better. He was barely maintaining it. And oddly, a lot of people didn't realize he had an addiction. When did people start catching on that this was kind of a thing like, there's something going on with Greg, but I can't put my finger on it, or sure. Greg has a problem? You know, that's a, that's a good question. Um, probably
3: not till I got divorced. I mean, and actually, that was, that was kind of another turning point. That's a whole other story. But uh, the, the first marriage was—I had gotten better, and then, you know, that whole thing happened, and it kind of sent me right back over the edge.
1: Their marriage had been on a decline for some time, and there were a multitude of factors contributing to their divorce. Greg then, just shy of his 30th birthday, lost his house— moved in with his parents, failed rehabs, and signed divorce papers. And none of these were rock bottom. Not even close. A key to understanding rock bottom is knowing that it's different for each person. For the ones that supported Greg through rehab and experienced the aftermath of his marriage, it was a hard pill to swallow, like seeing their effort fail on repeat. Dixie, who was seeing this from the sidelines, reminds us of addiction's toll on a family. I wasn't in the midst of Greg's addiction.
0: I wasn't being lied to. I wasn't having to take him to rehab or spend the money on rehab and then see it not work. So for me, it was a lot easier to be sympathetic. I I understand his family's frustration and just ready to just wash their hands of it because how many times can you keep rescuing someone and see them go back to the same behaviors that you've rescued them from? You know, you spent your time, you spent your money, you spent your energy, you worried You know, I'm sure spent sleepless nights and they just go back and do that same thing. You know, again, I I get that. I understand Greg's doing it because he had an addiction and that's what addictions do to you. You know, your driving force is going to be that addiction, not, you know, I'm fucking my family over. I'm, you know, throwing everything away. That's not it because your mind is just
1: going after those drugs, For Greg, the turning point wasn't in a controlled environment surrounded by family and drug counselors. When you hit rock bottom, like what was rock bottom for you? Rock bottom for me was, uh, I moved into this basically flop
3: house. Me and three other guys rented a house next to Brown's Bar. And it was literally a flop house. Um, One of the guys was bringing in bricks and bricks and bricks of pot and coke. And that was never my thing. I was the only heroin addict. Everybody else was doing pot and coke, which you know anything about coke it makes people crazy so it was a very volatile situation the tipping point was the one guy who was bringing in a lot of the coke um, asked me one time if I could get him some some dope so I did and you know he was strung out on coke at the time and he flipped out because he didn't think that what he paid for was what he got. And I'm like, dude, this is what they gave me. This is your money's worth. And, like, dope isn't, like, measured the same as coke. I don't know what to tell you. And he had, you know, he was on a he was on a bender. And he just flipped out and started smashing stuff. And he pulled a gun on. And the cops got called. And, you know, when the cops came, you know, everything had calmed down by that point. And actually this guy, guy was very much in trouble with the cops because he had he had sold some pot to some high school kid while well, the kid didn't pay him he ran off he like grabbed the pot and ran off well this guy took a trailer hitch so a ball hitch off of the back of his truck and smashed the kid's face in so the cops came that was what the initial call was about i mean and this was again just it was such a, a tornado a whirlwind the cops ended up coming to the house that we were all living in well, they came back later in the day, like midnight, because they knew this was a drug house. They they were well aware of most of what was going on. I was sleeping in my bedroom, and they pounded on the door, and they made us all get out, and they handcuffed us all. When I was put in a situation where I was looking at some serious time, if I didn't start making good decisions, that was a big eye-opener for me. That whole thing with the cops and... That, that scared me. I had no place else to go. You know, I was, I showed up at your mom's house.
0: You know, he was living in that house um, and it was not a good situation. It was, the police were there, I think, pretty often. They were certainly aware of the activities that were taking place there. But I think what, you know, poor Greg, when he came to my house, that situation he was in was not good. That all the kind of however many people lived there, they all kind of, in whatever state they were in, decided that Greg had, you know, betrayed them or whatever. I mean, he was seriously, he was scared and, you know, for, for good reason. And like I had kind of talked about earlier, his his appearance, because I had known, you know, just from from hearsay or whatever, what he was doing, that he was doing heroin, but I hadn't seen him you know, or would see him sporadically. But, but when I saw him that night, it was his appearance was pretty drastically changed. He was thin. He was drawn. Like I said, he had the probably what was most striking to me was the the open sores, which were kind of a telltale sign. But um, and, you know, I'm talking to Greg and he's kind of telling me about the the situation at the house. And like I said, he was scared. And then uh, somehow in the course of our conversation, he he looked at me. And he said, do you know what I've been doing? And I said, well, yeah, I, I know that you've been, you've been doing heroin. I know that. And, and this just broke my heart because the look on his face, he said, does my dad know? And I said, well, I, I don't know. I said, but I tell you, what, I'm not going to be the one to tell him. You know, that's, that's for you. I, that, was, that was rock bottom for me.
1: Um, I was scared, and I knew I had to make changes. Soon after Chris graduated from high school in 2003, he and his future wife Jamie moved around Wisconsin. They were married with children a few years later, and they started to make a life for themselves. For what Becky remembers, Chris loved being a dad. This part of his life made things better. Becky's life moved in a different direction as well, After years serving at a local restaurant, she realized how much she enjoyed working with kids. She went back to Eau Claire to finish her degree in English education, and she was two years ahead of me in the same program. It was a good chance to hear about Chris, his brothers, and Bill. During this time, Becky and Chris began to grow apart, connecting through phone calls or social media. And this was hard for Becky. For the better part of 20 years, she helped Chris. And more importantly, she had an ability to help him. He was right there, within an arm's distance. Now, he wasn't even close. But Chris's drug problems didn't go away. At the most, they were sidelined. Even from a distance, Becky caught on.
2: I think a lot of it was just the people he was with, the lifestyle he was in. I know, you know, one Christmas Eve... Jamie had told me, oh, it's really bad. He's using crack and blah, blah, blah. And so, of course, what can I do? He's, you know, 20-some years old.
1: There wasn't much Becky could do. Her and others encouraged Chris to seek counseling. Even getting Chris to take these steps was difficult. As Becky suggests, admitting you need help isn't easy.
2: But I think there's such a stigma attached to people that have mental health issues or drug addiction issues that a lot of people are hesitant to seek out help because then, oh, everybody's going to think I'm the bad person. Um, And you don't want people to think you're a drug addict or an alcoholic or whatever. And if it's, you know, interfering in your life, you got to you got to try to get some help. He didn't want anybody's help. He didn't want to help himself. And he didn't think he had any problems. And so it's extremely difficult, and I found myself extremely guilt-ridden about every little thing. And for years and years, you still think, oh, if I would have just did this, and if I would have just did that, and, you know, you can't change anything.
1: As time went on, Becky noticed things weren't getting better for Chris. She would see photos of him on Facebook, and he looked tired, less like the boy she raised.
2: I think I knew he was using heroin or getting into something really hard again because the crack use had stopped. And But he was a daily weed smoker, and he had been in the hospital mm-hmm. with his lungs had collapsed just collapsed a couple of times. Um, plus, he smoked cigarettes, so it was just not a good combination. But the heroin use, I just kind of had an inkling you know, because of things he'd say on Facebook, uh, and I don't even remember what it was, but it was like – That just sounds like you're trying something you shouldn't be trying.
1: Becky intervened at a certain point. Chris was facing possible backlash from a drug deal that left some people sour. Like Chris, she loved his children, and she wanted to keep them safe. She didn't realize what would happen next. Were you having, like, much contact with Chris during this time?
2: Uh, No. What happened was... He got caught with some, I think it was a lot of weed and was going to arrested and whatever. And I think he, in order to keep himself out of jail, he had to name names. And um, so they were afraid that like a different drug guy was going to, you know, they were afraid for their safety. So they were going to take the kids and move, which they did and which upset me greatly. So I called social services on them to try to get them to stay because I was very close to the kids and worried about them. Ultimately, what happened was Chris stopped talking to me for about six months before he died. So that was kind of a bad choice on my part, I guess, but I was trying to do the right thing.
1: In January 2012, Chris died of a heroin overdose. He was 26. Arrangements were made for Chris's wake in Marshfield. It was the first time Becky had seen him in six months, and the first time that I had seen him since high school. Becky was upset with the mortician who did Chris's makeup. It was heavy, and she didn't want him to look like someone else. She just wanted Chris. Becky pointed something out when I spoke to her years later. The overdose turned his lips from pink to blue. Even in the end, against the odds, she helped Chris. As reported by the Center for Disease Control, the number of drug overdose deaths has quadrupled since 1999. As current as 2019, roughly 70% of 800,000 deaths involved opioids. That's half a million people, or nearly the entire state of Wyoming. And for some people, these are numbers or stats. You read about it or watch some video, but it really doesn't affect you. It's an abstract existence. For Becky, she lived those numbers and had to learn how to get through her day-to-day life. To complicate matters, she had to see kids not much younger than Chris as their English teacher. To say it was difficult, it's an understatement.
2: No, I would, I would call it two years of pure hell. Just because every day you wake up and that is was my first thought. You know, he is gone. And every day when I went to bed, that would be my last thought. And your brain just does not work correctly. I mean, I had never been fired from a job in my life. And in that two year span, I lost two jobs because I, you just, you don't even know what you're not doing. It's like you just can't think right.
1: All the little things mattered more. After Chris was gone, Becky couldn't help but notice that he was missing no matter where she went.
2: And you don't know what's going to crop up that's going to, upset you like you plan for the Christmases you plan to be upset in reality they don't affect you as much as you think they're going to but then little things happen like his brother had homecoming and I think was on homecoming court and that upset me when I was at the school because I don't know why because Chris wasn't there to know that and like your wedding really upset me because I went there And you were there, and Leah was there, and Lindsay, and Alicia. And it was like, oh, but Chris is missing.
1: This didn't occur to me until Becky told me how her and others close to Chris would feel the years after his death. I could guess, but I was on the sidelines, seeing the aftermath of their grief. Even from here, it's only an approximation. Greg's stay with Dixie was temporary, and when his dad came to pick him up, Greg couldn't move back to the farm. They all knew it would enable his addiction. This had happened before. Greg would get into trouble, they would bail him out, and it would start over again. They took a hard-line approach with him, which Greg says was critical to his success. As Greg recounts, it took several failures before he realized something. As you can imagine, everything that was going on, I was just
3: so sick of. I was sick of being sick, and and just everything that went into living a drug life. I mean, just the people that were around and just the things that were
1: happening. Greg deconstructed and rebuilt himself before. And, at this point, he wasn't good at it. At this time in central Wisconsin, if you didn't have access to health insurance or money for Betty Ford, it was an uphill battle. Greg found a place to live with a friend whose son left Marshfield to get away from his own drug problems. As Greg remembers, before he could get clean, he needed to be truthful to himself. The
3: biggest thing for me was realizing that I would relapse. Like you said before, I knew I would relapse. And I still know to this day that I will relapse. You know, when I started taking the Suboxone, and again, initially I was taking it to try and get high. It didn't work, but all it did was make me feel normal. Like, I wasn't sick. I was able to function completely normal because I actually wanted to get sober. I went to the methadone clinic in Wausau, and uh, they wanted to put me on methadone. And I was like, no, I really want to do the Suboxone because I know... Because I've done methadone also. On methadone, you can get... Methadone is amazing if you want to get high. But I was at that point in my life where I was just done. I'm still thankful to this day that I made that decision. I told them that I don't want to be on methadone because I knew I, I, knew I could abuse it. Whereas with the Suboxone, I, you can't abuse it. The only thing that's keeping me sober right now is being on the medication. I am completely, they call it maintenance, that I will probably just be on maintenance for the rest of my life.
1: Cifaxone is one of the main maintenance medications used to treat opioid addiction. As Harvard Health states, it's a combination medication which mixes an opiate with an opiate effect blocker, which blunts intoxication, prevents cravings, and allows addicts to transition off opiates and other drugs. And Cifaxone is debatable. Some people see it as a crutch, something that doesn't address the root of addiction and prolongs the body's opioid intake. For Greg, it's complicated. After seeing his friends stay clean for years and then overdose, it's not fear that drives him. It's being pragmatic. You don't control addiction. Addiction controls you. And he isn't willing to take any more chances. But sifoxone is one part of the puzzle, not the puzzle itself. Addiction treatment requires a triage of mechanisms like therapy, support groups, housing assistance, and employment support. All of these can be costly, and honestly, sometimes, addicts can't reach them without a financial backer or general support. On top of that, it takes months and even years for addicts to realize what combination works for them. Becky has been an advocate for addiction awareness and resources since Chris's death answering questions and organizing speaker events at her local high school to her it's more than getting the word out
2: when you tell somebody oh my son died they like oh i'm sorry and they are very leery and it's like no i'll talk about him because if you don't talk about him it's like he never existed and as far as at school i'm very open with the kids you know Um, The biggest thing is they'll see my tattoo, which is like Chris's memorial tattoo, and they'll be like, why do you have an Air Jordan on your ankle? And I'll kind of explain it, and then they're like, oh, sorry. And it's like, no, it's okay. Part of my reasoning to explain, you know, his story and what happened to him is because I want them to know how dangerous getting into drugs are. You know, because a lot of high school kids are of the theory, everybody smokes weed, and it's okay, and it's not a problem. And I want them to know that, yeah, it's maybe not a problem for 90% of people who can then, you know, get to adulthood and stop using drugs daily. But for that other percentage, it is a problem, and you're going to get into harder drugs and heavier drugs, and it's going to interfere with your life, and and it could be a dead-end road for you.
1: Again? Dixie.
0: It, it's sad. And I think it's, you know, between him and Greg, it just kind of shows you that, you know, who ends up with an addiction is is just so, you know, random. And again, not what you would typically think. It, anybody can end up with that. And I think with both of them too, it was at a time where that was just kind of getting widespread in in smaller towns. You know, So now people are fully aware that, that heroin is around all over the place. Um, but I think then it was still, you know, a pretty novel idea to, to a lot of people and, and kind of hard to grasp that people in a small community were doing it and dying from it.
1: State and federal governments have passed initiatives to address the opioid crisis. If you have ever worked with government monies, though, it's a slow process from legislation to visible outcomes. We're talking months to years if there isn't already a network developed. As recent as 2018, Wisconsin DHS and United Way formed the Wisconsin Recovery Helpline to bridge the gap between people and support agencies. Greg has been able to stay clean through the support of his friends and family. He's been able to keep his job, remarry, start a family, and buy a new home. Right now, his family is happy.
0: Like I said, there's not a whole lot of people that can can overcome that, and what he's done is— Nothing short of amazing, because when you look at how many times that kid had to go to rehab, um, you know, there's probably not a whole lot of people that go into rehab, what was it, three times? Um, That go into rehab that many times and then are able to kick their habit. Um, But he's done fantastic. He really has. I think he really beat the odds and came out ahead.
1: It's difficult to comprehend what Greg and Chris experienced It's easier to say, well, they just should have said no to drugs. But so many times, life lacks a perfect black and white duality. Even for all his recent accomplishments, Greg doesn't live in this world. And he can only remind himself of that in the end. If I didn't
3: have this medication, knowing what I would lose if I used again, you know, knowing I would lose my family, knowing I would, you know, not be able to be a Jehovah's Witness, be able to talk to my parents, lose my house, knowing that, I, I still know at some point I would still use. I just, I know, I just, I, and you have to have that realization.